only a 1% reduction in car use equates to a potential 10% increase in bus use. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week does two jobs. Sometimes you'll find him in Brighton as the Head of Innovation Strategy for Brighton & Hove and its sister company Metrobus, while other days he's in Merseyside leading on decarbonisation for the Liverpool City region. While most of the bus industry is, by necessity, preoccupied by the day-to-day, Patrick Warner is firmly focused on the future. In this conversation, we'll discuss innovation, decarbonisation and how to make buses the transport mode of choice. So let's look to the future now with Patrick Warner. Patrick, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Thanks, Thomas. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So how does it work then? Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday in Liverpool, Thursday, Friday in Brighton, is that how it works? Uh, let's say I'm very agile. So I spend, um, <laughs> <laughs> like most of us in the last year to 18 months, working virtually from home, um, which means I've got a, a breakfast bar set up with two laptops and a big screen and I flip from the northwest to the southeast in uh, in seamlessly in just a moment. But uh, <laughs> uh, we'll be starting to appear in person uh, in the next few months, I hope. So they're very different. One's a multinational PLC, the other is a public sector body for a defined region. How did you end up with this kind of split personality? Uh, well, I guess uh, the work I've been doing with with Go Ahead's Southeast businesses in Brighton and Crawley um, has become quite well known, I guess, within the industry. Um, hydrogen is uh, an emerging uh, technology for decarbonisation of buses, um, and I've been very vocal about my beliefs in that. Um, Liverpool City region have an ambition to to trial these first 20 buses, which could become 40 with a successful zebra bid. Um, and they recognise the need to bring some operator experience, so uh, approached me. Um, and luckily, my employers were, were happy to uh, agree to a sharing arrangement on a, on a secondment basis. I was looking at the um, results from last year's um, Citizens' Assembly on climate change. There was a Citizens' Assembly, 150 people got together to say what should be done about climate change. And the most popular policy when it came to to transport was decarbonisation of the public transport fleet, uh, which doesn't feel that surprising. We haven't really got that far with it, though, have we? I mean, across the board. No, we haven't. And I guess when you look at places like Brighton and Crawley and, and now Liverpool as well, actually you find it's not an easy easy thing to solve. Um, these buses are um, the most popular mode of public transport in Britain. Um, they're very well used. Um, in Brighton and Crawley, that's, that's extremely heavily. I think we're the, by far the, the highest use of bus use uh, per head of population outside of London by quite a long way. So these buses are often on the road for up to 24 hours a day. Um, heavy loads across our long long peaks uh, during the day and quite often operating on quite challenging terrain as well so really not an easy thing to do but I think it's really important to remember that although we know road transport emissions are by far the the biggest polluter in our local air quality local environments and actually only four percent of it comes from our current legacy diesel fleet so if we were to only decarbonise buses, uh, we'd be falling a long way short on the very important work that needs to be done. So um, buses are just the start, but I think can be quite a powerful enabling force for much wider decarbonisation. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting the way some people do point the finger at buses and actually the problem is cars. It car travel 
because of their carbon emissions. But actually, even if you decarbonize the entire car fleet, uh, they're still going to be a massive source of carbon emissions because there's so much in the production and the disposal of cars that you the answer has got to be vastly more people on buses and it's vastly more people on decarbonized buses. Definitely. Now, one interesting thing, of course, is that the automotive industry seems to have decided that the future for decarbonization is electric. And I don't know if that's entirely down to Elon Musk or only partially, but <laughs> yeah, an awful lot of money, you know, many, 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 many billions is going into investment in electric automotive technology. And it looks like or looked like the bus industry was following down the same path. But you've kind of waved a red flag and said, hold on, change direction. Um, do you think it's, it, it, should the whole automotive sector change direction? Has, has the whole world got it wrong or has the, simply the bus industry got it wrong in your view? Well, I think when we look at how we use private cars, actually that's quite an easy, easy solution most of the time. Um, although, as we found with our electric eye pace on a on a trip to door pay, uh, door, Dorset, sorry, last weekend, um, that's actually not quite so easy. It requires a lot of extra planning to ensure that you've got charge time at the right point and that it doesn't intrude on your your day out when you're travelling quite a bit. But for the vast majority of the time, private cars are sat around for about eighty five percent of the time, doing very little. So you can live your life quite easily. But as I said, passengers expect these buses to be on the road for up to 24 hours a day where we work. Um, and that requires a completely different solution that currently battery te electric technology fall a long way short in, in providing unless we're happy to build in huge inefficiencies in terms of uh, extra vehicles required to do the same work as we found when we did trials in, in Brighton and Crawley um, and the extra drivers that are going to be involved in that because let's not forget um, driver wages form by far the largest part of bus companies operating costs at around 75% so it's not simply a case of buses that cost twice the price being increased by quite a number to do the same mileage it's a lot of extra driver cost as well. So you might be aware of this, and I'm not, uh, what the precise numbers are, but there are a lot more electric buses in the UK than hydrogen buses at the moment, aren't there? So yeah. why do you think that is, if it's fundamentally a less suitable technology for the, for, for, for the bus market? Definitely. Well, I think the, the big barrier to hydrogen has been the price. Um, even with the massive progress we've seen, hydrogen buses halve in price over the last five years, which is far faster progress than we've seen on electric bus pricing. Um, but it remains that hydrogen buses are slightly more challenging to make a business case to do. And I think that's why a lot of people sort of confronted with the blind faith that the nation seems to have in electric being the answer. Um, has made people a little bit more resistant uh, or, or, or reticent about uh, pursuing hydrogen. But uh, as I said, we, we operate in a very busy bus territory. And, and for us, it was going to be huge cost to, to try and do it with electric. So hydrogen appeared to be the logical answer. Um, and, uh, and, and we're making real progress on, on that, making a sensible financial case as well. So if I went on to the kind of bus equivalent of Amazon and bought myself an electric bus and a hydrogen bus, how much would they both cost at the moment and compared to exactly the same as an internal combustion engine? Yeah, so if you were looking at a, a standard single-decker, um, hydrogen bus around 400,000 um, and an electric one for probably about 330,000, 340,000. Uh, so um, much, much closer. As I said, it was a million pound a bus when I started looking at this five years ago for hydrogen. So we've seen huge improvement on pricing. Um, but then you've got to look at the infrastructure. Um, and 
that's another area I think hydrogen scores really strongly with because it gives us um, energy resilience for the future. If we're looking for someone to make the correct calculation for the grid in infrastructure upgrades, um, we've got to hope that the next time a supermarket goes in or a new housing development goes in, someone doesn't make a mistake and leave us short of energy. Um, whereas with hydrogen, you put the infrastructure in far less invasive, uh, much cheaper to do. Um, and you've got provided the, the delivery of hydrogen turns up each day or each week, however often you need it, um, reliable source there constantly without having to sort of constantly keep vision of, of other things that may drain the, drain the grid capacity in the future. So you've got this current um, cost premium on hydrogen. Is your view that it's the right investment anyway, or do you think that cost premium will be eliminated over time? I think within the next five to seven years, we will see um, the the price for hydrogen buses probably dip below that of electric. Um, and I certainly see, um, particularly as diesel starts to become used more scarcely generally, um, over the next five to seven years, that the price of hydrogen dipping below which we currently pay for diesel. Um, so a good sound economic case for the future, as well as vehicles that can do what our customers expect. So if that's right, then we shouldn't be buying any more electric buses and we should all be buying hydrogen buses going forward. So you know, if that, if the reason that's not happening is simply that they're more expensive at the moment, then shouldn't someone, shouldn't government, shouldn't there be interventions to stop the whole industry driving down a blind alley? Uh, that's a great, great point. And I think um, certainly government uh, are listening. Um, I think they've tried to be very technology, uh, technology neutral, um, as we did in the early days, um, it's important to say. Um, and of course, there's a lot of other things when, you, when you're a government that you're thinking about as well in terms of jobs for manufacturing um, and uh, all sorts of energy considerations. So uh, hydrogen might to me, appear a no-brainer, but I quite appreciate that uh, other people may have different uh, views when they're when they're making decisions. But but certainly for buses, and I think a lot of other heavy road transport too, hydrogen is going to have an increasingly huge role to play in the decarbonisation agenda. Are there? I don't. I don't know an awful lot about hydrogen production. Um, are there any issues in terms of the energy cost of generating? hydrogen in the way that you know and the the carbon footprint of an electric bus is hugely variable depending on whether the energy that powers the garage comes from you know, a coal-fired power station or a wind turbine are there similar questions around hydrogen or not yeah certainly so um there are a number of sources of hydrogen um most of them up until this point um haven't always been the cleanest that's fair to say even if they're providing power for for zero emission transport on the road um but there is um increasing drive now um, in the take up of green hydrogen production which is that that's made with um uh, renewable energy sources um a, a big sort of taxation question i guess for government to to square there with uh, the energy companies about um currently um, I believe that green hydrogen producers have to be really careful about the amount of grid power they may need. It's really important to get uh, renewable energy to, to ensure it's green hydrogen. But if they're taking power from the grid um, that would otherwise be powering the grid, obviously, um, then there's a, a penalty for them to pay. So lots more work, I think, to be done way above my pay grade on on uh, which which areas of the energy market need incentivizing. But um, a huge prize to to be grabbed if uh, if we can get those sums right and, and keep the treasury afloat. And of course, you know, a oil refinery also produces you consumes vast amount of electricity. And I suppose the advantage, at least, that hydrogen has is that its power it's, 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 it's generation can be concentrated in certain areas. You don't have the problem you mentioned earlier that the energy has to be distributed precisely to the locations that it's going to be used. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I'm quite sure that we'll start to see regional green hydrogen energy production. Um, for us, our first ones are, are likely to come in the southeast from Hearn Bay um, in the northwest. Um, there's a, a big local energy um, production of hydrogen already, of course. Um, they've got the chlorine industry there with Innovin and Ineos, um, and they're producing very low carbon uh, hydrogen there, which at the moment has very little use. So um, I believe there's quantities of, of very clean blue hydrogen there that uh, that is in masses certainly big enough to power the, the city region's fleet. But um, a, a debate I think we have, because it's very clear government are incentivizing us all to pick green hydrogen options. So uh, whether it's a, a clean blue source at the start, there needs to be a pathway for that being green. And so, you know, just for clarity, are you literally saying that you cannot think of any use cases where electric power is the best way to pub, to power buses? It just is it is not the case as far, uh, from no, your experience. No, I mean, you can see already in the country there are electric buses going onto the roads. Uh, my colleagues at our sister company, Go Ahead London, have, have had huge success with, uh, with electric buses there. And it's making a real difference in the capital, so I'm not knocking it. Uh, what I'm saying is that um, I think we're in a very uncertain world at the moment. Um, we know that passenger confidence has been hit very heavily. There's been a sharp drop in, in bus usage. And so we don't really know what the, the shape of the network will be in the future, um, other than we're going to be continually challenged to get back to the sort of ridership levels that we had at, at 2019. I believe in bus. I believe that we'll, we'll reach a point in a few years where we do that and surpass it and get back to growth, uh, the, the growth that we've always known. But it certainly remains the, the fact that, that we're in for some uncertain times. So we don't need to be building, in my opinion, inefficiencies in now and extra costs by buying vehicles that aren't really fit for purpose now. But but with uh, when you look at battery usage and, and life uh, could add a whole load of extra cost uh, later on. So talk to me about some of the challenges involved in the decarbonisation process, moving away from what the fuel source is, um, just you know, to get from where we are now to where Britain needs to get to, to meet its carbon commitments. What are the what are the challenges and the obstacles in the way and how do we overcome them? Well, I think whether I'm right or, or, or not, whether we're buying electric buses or hydrogen buses, it's the huge cost. Um, there are, I believe, 38,000 buses on the roads in the UK today. Um, so a huge number of, of vehicles to replace um, if we're to meet the, um, the the 2050 net zero target or some of the more ambitious sort of 2030, 2035 local council targets on, on air quality. Um, and that investment has to start now. Um, I'm privilege to be involved in in two areas of the country where that investment is happening now um, but lots and lots more to do so I think it's really really important that if we're to have a chance of doing those that the decisions we make for buses now because they present an enabling scale to, to start getting these new new future fuels off the ground um, we, we sweat the assets of, of that public investment as hard as we can um, and that again is where I believe hydrogen scores very well because we can share that infrastructure with other fleets locally um, so one of the projects that we're involved in with Brighton Hove buses is is a collaboration between two councils dust cart fleets and a whole depot conversion of buses um, if the, the, the funding um, comes through on that and that's making sure that infrastructure that was directed for buses and, and clean tailpipe emissions there does a lot more straight away the potential though is far greater to do that and does the national bus strategy make it easier or harder? Because I could I could make an argument that says that the fact that 
no one really knows the future. Decisions are going to be taken by the government and by public authorities. It makes it harder for private companies such as the one you work for sometimes um, to <laughs> make investment decisions. Um, and so the investment pipeline will dry up just when we need it most. But you could also make another case that says that if the government is taking more interest in specifying the product more, it's more likely to back that up with the cash needed to make uh, investments and change, changes to the specification. What, what's, what's your take on that? Uh, well, I was really pleased personally uh, with the bus strategy. I think it enshrined into policy for the first time in my life. Um, many other things that we both demonstrate locally in Brighton and Crawley in terms of strong partnerships with a, a vast array of, of regional stakeholders, but particularly local councils. Um, and crucially, the priority for bus. Um, so uh, we can only unlock investment for zero emission buses if the, the bus operators and the councils are working together to ensure that that money is used sensibly. So bus priority measures, um, which I've been calling for for ages along with colleagues, um, now locked in through the bus strategy to, to be delivered alongside this. So I really think there's a huge opportunity for uh, operators with vision and, and local authorities um, with the determination to do what sometimes, let's face it, politically is really difficult. Um, voters don't like being deprived of, of, of road space for, for their cars. Um, so we have to make sure that when these zero emission bus journeys come and the enhanced priority that comes with that, that we reverse the decade of damage in journey times on buses um, and also spec these vehicles so that they're going to be a real pleasure to ride on. Then I think we've got a real choice for motorists that should start to unlock modal shift like we've never seen before, but only if everyone works together. So you mentioned um, operators with vision there. What do we do about the operators without vision? Because they need to be decarbonised too. Well, the, the beauty of, of uh, Bus Back Better, the national bus strategy, is that actually for those without vision, if you read the document, there's plenty of vision to share in there with you. Um, so <laughs> if it's not in your DNA like it is ours, um, it, it's certainly there to read and, and learn from. <laughs> Download vision on PDF. Fantastic. <laughs> so tell me a bit about the work that's happening. You're, you're, you're decarbonizing within a PLC environment. You're decarbonizing within a... Um, regional authority environment, you know, doing both simultaneously. Actually, is it very similar? And largely, is it looking up to Uncle Boris for checks? Or are there very different environments leading to very different outcomes? Well, there, there's certainly differences in the environments, but actually they're both city environments. The, the, the Brighton and, and Crawley one is a little bit more compact, um, although sort of split into two areas, whereas in Liverpool, I'm, I'm going to be responsible for delivering this across a, a much bigger city region. But actually, the challenges are very similar. Um, traffic uh, congestion um, heavily uh, impacting the re reliability of bus journeys um, and, uh, and many of the same cost challenges there. So certainly I think government are going to need to play an enabling role with funding for, uh, for a lot longer. Um, we've had the ambitious commitment for the first 4,000 zero emission buses that will be drip fed over the next few years. Um, but if it's if it comes with the infrastructure improvements, it will become cheaper to do it as well because we'll be able to use buses more efficiently and crucially impress people um, with, with more uh, with with faster journeys too. So, so we so we talked a bit about. Um, the need to get more people onto buses to reverse the decade of decline in journey times. Um, you've obviously been wearing an innovation hat for uh, even longer than you've been wearing a decarbonisation hat, or at least formally. Um, what What are your thoughts around what areas of innovation are needed to achieve that level of growth and to start to make this process self-funding? 
definitely. Well, whether I'm in the northwest or the southeast, uh, my lens on on the bus world is passenger experience. Um, so quick, clear, clean, uh, understandable journeys with equally as as quick and easy to understand payment. Um, that doesn't always mean a, a sort of London style integrated oyster system, um, but it certainly should. Um, flow easily and be trustworthy. So one of the things that we've had great success with uh, after years actually of, of high success with off-bus payments. So in, in Brighton and Crawley, around 80% of our, our passengers before the pandemic paid with either a, a smart card uh, that they got through us um, or uh, our very popular mobile ticket range, which they could download onto their phone. Um, but before the pandemic, we introduced contactless tap-on, tap-off with automatic capping, uh, which worked across both brands. Um, and we actually saw a lot of people shift from those previous mobile tickets or smart cards to contactless tap on tap off just for the convenience but you don't need to download a product or, or onto your phone or, or a smart card account um, you just turn up and go um, and it does have you do have to work really hard to ensure that, that there's trustworthy mechanisms behind that to ensure that people get best value um, but we're facing a new world now where people are less likely i think to be commuting in the traditional five days a week pattern um, and more likely to do a blend of what we've been doing in the last year or so um, and some in-person meetings. So we're going to have to be agile and adapt to that too to ensure that people are rewarded for traveling less often, bizarrely, uh, but hopefully <laughs> more often for leisure purposes as well as, as well as the less commuting that they might be doing. So look forward for me um, to, you, know, you can pick your own date, but you know, 10 years, say, 2031, what do you think will be different about buses and the bus industry and the bus passenger experience compared to today? Well, I, I hope very much that the bus will be um, something that you aspire to use. Um, too often, it's been seen as the, the choice of transport for those who don't have a choice. Um, I think they're great. The government thinks they're great, crucially, and are, are putting some investment into it. Um, and operators have been working very hard to make them great too. So let's see features on there that rival the, the sort of feature that we've enjoyed in our personal cars um, and those quick journeys. And I think we'll have something that makes no-brainer sense really to to lots of people i'm not saying we shouldn't aspire to have the independence and own our own cars as well but it's just about choosing the journeys looking at the journeys that we do regularly and choosing the appropriate tool so that might mean an increase in walking or cycling for some of us at times it might be an increase in in using the bus and uh, overall probably less of our private cars um, but it should result in um, quicker more convenient journeys um, that improve our health and fitness uh, and make us fitter for the future too and i mean being honest what you just said about making buses feel like cars has been said repeatedly for decades uh, as an aspiration, but it never actually happens. You know, most buses still feel very much like buses that they felt like for the previous however many decades. And there are a whole load of honourable exceptions, but the fact we can list many of them means that they're exceptions. So do you think something is going to change to fundamentally tip the scales? Because I, I always look at the market share the bus has as a proportion of local journeys, and it's, you know, it's about 10%. So the, the, the room for growth feels fantastic. But actually, those changes to potentially go and grab some of that market share don't happen. And I think we can we know some of the reasons why in terms of historic investment and the challenges of building business cases for some of these things and a reluctance to invest speculatively in the bus sector. Is that going to change? 
Yeah, I think it will do. Um, and so interestingly, I think um, I'm correct in saying that if only a 1% reduction in car use equates to a potential 10% increase in bus use. Um, so the, the prize is huge and it doesn't need to be massive changes to, to, to make a big impact. Um, but we've already seen, if you look at some of the leading work that my colleagues, um, particularly Victoria Garcia, have been doing on accessibility, um, looking at the uh, looking at the journey on, on the bus through the lens of of people who maybe don't find it as easy for a, a whole host of different reasons to to get around and, and have their independence as you or I do. Um, many of those things that we've been doing for the last decade that, that have, have been leading the industry are now hardwired in through the bus strategy um, to to be standard features. And I think when we prove over the next few years. Um, those notable exceptions uh, where growth follows uh, really good spec buses that uh, that people want to ride on, um, then it's going to be up to that strategy nationally to evolve to lock in some of those uh, higher higher spec features too, so that the growth can be shared across the country. So let's look at Brighton for a minute. When I I did some analysis for freewheeling a few months ago into the places where bus use had grown in the last four years, and there were own Bus use has grown in the last 10 years. And there are only four places. And Brighton was one of them. And interestingly, that's despite a cut in funding in that period as well. And that's not surprising. Brighton has been leading the industry in terms of bus use for a very long time. And an awful lot of things that are now standard started their life in Brighton. So do you have a view as to where Brighton's going to be going next that the rest of the industry might look to follow? Um, well, I think more of more of the good solid progress that we've made, those features I was just talking about, enhanced features becoming even more standard on, on our buses in Brighton. Um, we're helped in, in Brighton where that strength of partnership that I referred to earlier on um, is really mature. So um, we've got a situation that um, it's not actually an easy place to drive around with cars um, because of the, the constrained highway space. It's actually easier to catch the bus. And as a result, we've got really frequent bus services that are easy to understand, um, very reliable um, and very informed as well because we've got a lot of real-time uh, signs on the street that reinforce the fact that it's only another couple of minutes until the next bus turns up. Um, but we've also got um, the benefit of quite high parking charges in the city centre. So a bit of a, a, a carrot and stick there um, that probably needs to be shared more widely. So that's Brighton. And Liverpool is a slightly different situation. That partnership that you described hasn't always been there uh, historically. And I can't remember what year it was, but it's within the last 10 years that Liverpool took the decision to strip out all its bus lanes which is certainly not something that happened in Brighton. So do you see the degree of transformation that you've got in your mind happening in a place like Liverpool, where that partnership between city and operators has, has historically not resulted in that, that symbiotic growth that you've seen in Brighton? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm aware of some of the history um, of, of bus lanes in Liverpool, and, and I know um, that uh, we've had a, a refresh politically um, in the area, and so we've now got uh, politicians that are uh, very keen to embrace this. And as a result, the the first 20 uh, hydrogen buses that uh, that I deploy in or lead the deployment of in, in Liverpool will be complemented by a, a programme of enhanced bus priority measures, um, putting some of those bus lanes uh, back. Not always bus lanes, though. There's a lot else we can do to support it uh, with more attractive infrastructure on the street, um, traffic light priority signals, um, and a, a wider programme of, of corridors across the city where we know those 
bus journey times have, have become crippled over the last decade or so, um, that in, interventions are going to be needed to, to turn that around. So partnership very much improving up there too. Um, and some really exciting things, I think, that could come uh, linked to some of the regeneration that's going on. So I was in a meeting only last week where we were talking about the uh, big development that's that's coming on uh, the Wirral in, in Merseyside. Um, and that's likely to spawn the first BRT system um, in, in Merseyside. So some fantastically um, great opportunities, I think, for everyone to work together um, and to, to hardwire really quick and efficient bus services of, of whatever format they, they might take in the future, whether, whether tram-like tram -like style bus with rubber wheels um, or the traditional double-decker that, that many people love so much now. Final question from me. Bus service improvement plans are being contemplated and created over the next six months. And you're sort of on the operator side in one city, you're on the local authority side in another city, and the decarbonisation agenda is a massive driver, um, but also a, a kind of complicator in many ways of this whole thing, because actually decarbonisation doesn't really change the passenger environment and therefore growth, but it does require massive cost up front. So take into account decarbonisation and, and the two perspectives you have. How do you think this bus service improvement plan process is going to go What's good? What, what's gonna? What's it gonna? What's the next year gonna look like? Well, I hope that the bus service improvement plans are gonna be that um, enabling um, conversation for local authorities and operators to work closely together. Now, um, who knows what the future will hold in some areas? Um, that might be in an enhanced partnership that it gets delivered uh, through, or it might be in franchising um, in in some areas of the country. Um, but whatever happens, whichever route people end up going down, it will involve more partnership work in and, and the bus service improvement plans are a, a great opportunity I think for everyone around the table to get a heads up on just what the challenges are and where the interventions are needed um, and why it's so important that they work together to deliver them. Has anyone given you any hint as to what the money will be and where it'll come from and how it'll be allocated? I haven't been involved in uh, the, the, the bus service improvement plan detail in, in either areas. I've got my hands full uh, with the decarbonisation um, in both places at the moment. But I know colleagues are working really hard um, on, on developing that with, with our partners. No, it's worth a try. Never mind. Fantastic. <laughs> well, look, that's, um, that's covered everything that I wanted to talk about. But is there anything else on decarbonisation or innovation that I haven't mentioned that it's worth us discussing? Um, no, I think you've covered it really well. It's been a really enjoyable discussion and an opportunity to to share a glimpse, I guess, of, of the important work that I'm thoroughly enjoying in, in both ends of the country. So I appreciate the time to time to chat. Fantastic. Well, I, I hope you don't run into yourself on the West Coast mainline and scare yourself going in opposite directions <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Patrick Warner. Great to talk Thank, to you. Thanks, Thomas. Cheers. Well, that concludes the freewheeling podcast for this week. Thank you for listening and thank you to my guest, Patrick Warner, both the Head of Innovation Strategy for Brighton & Hove and Metrobus and the Decarbonisation Lead for the Liverpool City Region. I'll be back next week with my next guest on the freewheeling podcast, so I very much hope to join you then. Thanks very much indeed. Bye.